Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. One of the issues that John Cassian clearly feels needs to be dealt with, gotten out of the way at the very beginning of chapter eight of his institutes is a kind of argument that is going to be made. And he actually calls this a most pernicious disease of the soul, namely anger. People are trying to excuse it in such a way as to endeavor to extenuate it, to make excuses for it by a rather shocking way of interpreting scripture. So people must have been making these arguments quite often for him to think that it's important. Remember too, that the institutes are directed not just at everybody, but specifically at people living and devoted to a monastic life. So even within the monasteries, this must have been coming up. People will argue that there's a kind of example being provided about anger. So anger is not necessarily bad or wrong. Why not? Well, because the scriptures say that God himself rages. So the word there is furere. This is pretty common for Cassian to be tying these two together. Or God gets angry, iraski. So either God is getting irritated and angry, or God is like totally out of control with his anger. And they say, you know, if God can get angry like that, then it's not injurious, noxus, right? If we are angry with the brethren who do wrong. So, you know, it doesn't excuse all anger. It's saying that when our fellow monks or our fellow human beings screw up, eh, you know, God gets angry angry at them. So why can't we human beings get angry? And there's a lot of examples being provided within scripture. Cassian is just surveying probably the most commonly brought up. He says that the anger of God, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people. That's said many, many times, right? Or the prophet prays and says, Lord, rebuke me not in thine anger, nor chasten me in thy displeasure. And so, you know, when these things are being said like that, it's kind of natural that a lot of people, well, God does get angry. And think about the way in which people talk to each other, particularly like parents to children. Ooh, you better behave or God's going to get mad at you, right? Mad like I do. So the question then is, well, how should we understand this? And Cassian brings up two ways of understanding this. There are names, uh, we could say, two different ways of understanding the same mistaken approach. He talks about a literal approach to scripture, secundum literam. And, you know, this means taking the things that are said in their absolute literate sense. And then he says, well, that gives you something that is, as translated here, gross and material. Carnali et pingui, right? So something that is fleshly and something that is painted, something that is depicted. That's not the right way to be looking at these matters. This is there's some things you do want to be literal about. Other things, perhaps you don't. And a little bit later on, he's going to say, and he's going to use a Greek term here, we should understand these passages, not anthropopathos. So pathos means emotion, right? And anthropo means human. So we should not understand these attributions of anger or rage or whatever. 
whatever to God in a way that you could say modeled after human emotions. Instead, you know, we should think of it in terms of how God, if God is angry, how God would be angry. So he says, this is to look at it according to the unworthy meaning of human passion. And the unworthy there is humilis, right? So the word we get humility from, the lowly. So we're not supposed to be you know, understanding these references to divine anger in that way. And Cassian is going to go on and say, listen, if you're going to apply this logic to the references to anger, well, what about all the other places in scripture where we see things attributed to God that we know can't really be correct, at least interpreted in a literal sense. And he's going to give you plenty of examples of this from scripture. So he says, listen, if you're going to buy into this God raging, then, you know, it's also said that God sleeps. For instance, arise, wherefore sleepest thou, O Lord? Now, does the creator and maintainer of the universe, this transcendent being, go to sleep every once in a while? No. So there must be some other way to understand that. It says, you know, behold, he who keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep, right? So even on a literal level in that, we don't, we don't have a God sleeping. What about God standing and sitting? He stands and sits since he says, heaven is my seat and the earth, the footstool for my feet, though he measure out the heaven with his hand, he holdeth the earth in his fist. Um, these aren't really appropriate. These are metaphorical constructions, right? Part of poetry, really. And then he goes out and he talks about other interesting cases. Does God get drunk? Well, there's, he is drunken with wine, as it is said, the Lord awoke like a sleeper, a mighty man drunken with wine. So that makes it sound like God tied one on and had a bender and then had to recover from it. Or what about ignorance or forgetfulness? We find mention of these in the Holy Scripture. You know, God doesn't know, for example, that the Tower of Babel is being built and he's like surprised when he comes on it. And he's like, wow, what is this? What are they going to do next? Him saying, what are they going to do next? implies that God doesn't know. So, you know, you can find scriptural instances about these. What about God having a body? He goes on at the end of this third chapter and he says, we often find mention in the Holy Scriptures of the outline of his limbs, which are spoken of as arranged and ordered like a human beings. The hair, head, nostrils, eyes, face, hands, arms, fingers, belly, and feet. If we're willing to take all of which, according to the bare literal sense, then we must think of God as in fashion with the outline of limbs and a bodily form. And he says, ah, this can't be right. So what he's doing here is he's, again, saying, if you're going to buy into this logic of, well, scripture says that God gets mad, so therefore God does get mad. Why don't you believe all these other things that scripture is saying at a literal level about God that we say are totally inappropriate to God? So then what would be the right interpretation? of these sorts of matters, he tells us that we should understand that God is free from all human passions. Perturbatio is the word that he's using there. And that's the word that he was using before in talking about the unworthy meaning of human passion. Perturbatio means a bad passion, the kinds of things that drive us, that shake us, anger being one of them. So he's going to go on with this right interpretation 
interpretation. If God is really free from all passion, how should we understand attributing anger to God? He says we should look at God as being the judge and avenger of all unjust things which are done in the world. And by reason of these terms and their meaning, we should dread him as the terrible rewarder of our deeds and fear to do anything against his will. Now he, he takes that back a little bit and he says, when you come before the judge, if you're actually like pure and clean and you haven't done anything wrong, well, then you don't have to fear. How many of us does that apply to? Not, not an awful lot. So we should look at God as being one who takes action in this world and in the life to come as well. And he goes on and he says, human nature is wont to fear those who it knows to be indignant, right? To indignare, to get angry and afraid of offending. As in the case of some most judge judges, those who are worrying about avenging wrath are those who've done stuff wrong, right? And this is very interesting here because he's not saying, well, you know, God does these things and everybody should take them as being avenging wrath, but in in a metaphorical sense, he's actually saying that the way that this gets interpreted is largely a function of how screwed up, how unjust we actually are. So he tells us here that God is executing his his law impartially. And he says, whatever kindness and gentleness with which it may be conducted, it is deemed by those who are justly to be punished, to be the most savage wrath and vehement anger. So it's not everybody necessarily who sees God's judgments or God's actions or the retribution that's being taken on people for unjust actions and says, oh, wow, God's anger, right? Some people are like, God's kindness. He's, you know, fixing things here. But those who have been doing the wrong thing are most likely to see this as most savage wrath and vehement anger on the part of the one who is administering justice. So this is how Lactantius thinks we ought to look at these references to divine anger. God doesn't feel the passion of anger like we human beings do, or be he's not driven by anger, but it's something that appears angrily to those who have transgressed. And that can include basically all of us more or less. Again, he's writing this to monks who are paying closer attention to their souls perhaps than other people are. And so there's no justification coming from this for us getting angry because we don't even feel the sort of thing that God would. The references to divine anger are not references, according to Cassian, to something that is like the anger that we feel and experience. Instead, it's just referring to, you might say, God's very goodness and justice. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.